Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Thank you so much for your patience. I know I have taken a little bit of a gap, but I was suffering from some conservation fatigue when you're just feeling a little bit stressed out about the planet and the grief associated with climate change and everything. Anyway, but the best way to get out of that is action and connection with other like-minded ocean heroes, conservationists, scientists, communicators, and people who care about our planet and our sea. So today I invited Tanya Douthwaite to talk to me about her journey in ocean conservation. She owns a business where she teaches free diving. She's a dive coordinator for an amazing seagrass project, which you guys will learn about. It is based in southern Western Australia, and if you live there, you can potentially join in and she's also the director of a Fremantle film festival where she showcases local and international ocean stories and conservation stories. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for supporting this project and let's get into the podcast. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. I'm here with Tanya Duthwaite. Did I pronounce that correctly? Southwaite, but close enough. Southwaite, my apologies. Um, I uh, should have checked with that beforehand. <laughs> uh, I will okay. let Tanya introduce herself, though, because she has so many titles that I don't want to mess those up. Uh, um, well, I run a small business called Blueback Freediving and Yoga. Uh, I run as dive coordinator seasonally for Ozfish. Um, for their Seeds for Snapper program, which is a seagrass restoration program here in Western Australia. And then I'm the director of the Fremantle Underwater Film Festival, a not-for-profit short film festival, um, screened mostly in WA these days. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So let's just dive in. Uh, to start off, how did you get into marine conservation or what started your love of the ocean? Oh, um, probably just growing up in Western Australia. I grew up in Fremantle, which is a port city. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is by the sea. Um, I guess a lot of what we do growing up and I guess enmeshed in our education is uh, sailing or boating or snorkeling and things like that or surfing. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of part of my education as well as just my location where I live. Um, I'd say probably from... Hmm, maybe age seven, how old are we in year five? Maybe like eight or nine more like. Um, I had a teacher that was really, um, had a strong environmental backbone, I would say. And um, yeah, just some of the things he brought up while I was in his class um, seemed to foster that environmental ethic. 
Um, I couldn't say it necessarily comes from my parents, but um, that's sort of probably where it began. And then I um, sort of channeled my focus towards the ocean um, as I as I got older. That's fantastic. As as a teacher myself, it you know it's always nice to hear when us as educators do have that impact on children. Mm. Maybe maybe in a few years from now on, there might be more ocean conservation um, young people because of my uh, conservation backbone. I, I hope so. Yeah, that's well. I'm I'm completely convinced that. Um, the teachers have a big role to play as well as obviously parents and community friends and family but yeah the just the the right kind of attitude I guess not forcing but inspiring youth really mm-hmm. I think it really has a big impact I'm sort of navigating that field with um, looking at free diving as a kind of um, therapeutic practice for young people especially young men as well as the safety aspect so um, sort of diving back into a role as teacher as well hopefully later this year but um, yeah I'd like to think it's important and it does have an impact. Yeah uh, and free diving is one of my favorite pastimes uh, I've definitely moved away from scuba diving more towards free diving recently and it's hmm. it, it's amazing so how, how did that come about your um, uh, free diving business down in Fremantle do you hmm take people out there or how, how do you run Yeah, that? yeah. Um, well, probably from snorkeling in, in primary school to high school, that probably mm. got me connected to the sea and going below it. I didn't really get into scuba diving or diving itself until my late 20s, um, but I studied marine science in my late 20s, so it seemed like a sensible thing to do to be able to see and observe more closely what's going on in the ocean while studying it. Um, yeah, I had a partner that was very much into diving, the ocean, surfing, and he had a boat. So while I was studying, I got quite involved with the diving community and just had heaps more experiences on, in, under the ocean. And I guess that just kicked off my full-blown passion for it um, once I could actually see and feel the ocean more, more readily. Yeah. Yeah, and that was yeah. wow, 20 years ago now. I'm 39 this year, so yeah, it was sort of early 20s to mid 20s. I got going. So, um, just from starting to dive and spending more time underwater, your you know, your whole life career has kind of blossomed into several different aspects, which I would love to touch upon. Uh, to start off with, um, you mentioned that on top of you know, your own business you also work as a marine science consultant for other organizations. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so oh, lots of different organizations over the years. I graduated in 2010 as a marine scientist. Um, yeah, I guess it's ranged. I did coral analysis for a, a resources project. Um, that was kind of, uh, what did we do? Like checking the coral health around where a project was going in up north. Um, so we had divers in the water to, to gather photography of, of corals and then we analysed the coral health using, um, I guess, digital, digital media and software. Um, so it was kind of an analysis um, as well as just using those observational skills as a, a scientist. Um, oh, there's a whole bunch of things. More relevantly these days, um, I integrate my diving skills and my safety skills um, for community engagement work um, 
with a seagrass project. So um, I work with UWA and Ozfish on um, the Seeds for Snapper project, which is a, Ozfish is a um, fish habitat restoration charity, and they're a national organisation now with um, quite a few different, um, I guess you could say projects or chapters around Australia. The one in WA sort of has a strong focus on citizen science and engaging local divers with seagrass restoration. Um, and mostly in, in this spot called Coburn Sound, which is just south or is part of the Fremantle area. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just I guess fostering people's interest in seagrass, the ecosystem itself, as well as the marine life that it supports. And that's just been, yeah, like one of my passions is marine science communication. So the film festival does that, but actually being on the ground with people and um, I guess fostering their interest in it really, yeah, it's really enjoyable as well as it helps the project move along because everyone can gain some education quite organically. Yeah, that's fantastic. So with the seagrass project, uh, what does the citizen science participation look like? So where do you find the people and can you kind of run through a, uh, from someone being interested to then joining you in the water? Yeah, 100%. Um, so the seagrass season, well, it's, it's based on nature. When nature decides when it's warm enough, the seagrass here, mostly the species called Posidonia australis, which is mm -hmm. like a strapweed um, or ribbonweed that um, blooms and then it has a fruit um, like their flowering plant so a fruit comes on the end of the grass and then when it's ripe you can basically tickle it <laughs> and then these floating seeds come up to the surface and we collect them so our job is to basically set up in September October for November when the season generally starts when they start flowering we train the divers um, make sure that they've got the right qualifications to join in. Um, we have a couple of sites that we go to, we set up supervision and then off they go. They tickle some seagrass, um, collect the fruit. And then we have some aquaculture tanks that we basically count the fruit, make sure we can get some good data on what we collect and what seed actually goes into the ocean. It gets cycled through an aquaculture tank. So the seed comes away from the fruit and the fruit peels off kind of like a beautiful banana skin um, so it floats on the surface and then that dense seed drops to the bottom of the tank usually in about 24 to 48 hours of aeration and, and insulation basically the sun shining on those seeds and then we open up the bottom of the tank and we measure that seed volumetrically and then we've got UWA team usually heads out sometimes with some volunteers as well to distribute at sites where we're doing monitoring so um, 80 to 85% of the seagrass in Coburn Sound was lost over the, the, the last few decades, especially from all sorts of reasons. Um, but citizen scientists sort of help measure um, as well as, you know, manually collect and distribute the, the seed and the seagrass. That's fantastic. And seagrass uh, for, you know, those people who haven't seen it, is it like normal grass? Can you just put the seeds down and they grow or is there more? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's been lots of different methods for um, basically trying to repopulate seagrass meadows. Um, some were mechanical. What we're doing is basically once that fruit coat comes off the seed, it's dense and it sinks. And if it's at the right stage that we've collected it, it's got a little wing on it. Mm -hmm. And when you pour it off a boat, basically it distributes itself. So it sort of spins 
like some there's some seeds in um terrestrial plants yeah yeah the little what's that the little seeds yeah you've seen them and once they fall from the tree they sort of spin because they've got a little wing on the side of it there's lots of different ways that plants um distribute their seeds but similar to land plants um seagrass do that or this particular species does and they you know distribute out over a patch of sand and then very quickly they germinate if you get them at that right point so it'll start growing root hairs already and then they'll cling onto the sand pick up the nutrient and yeah start to grow if it's in a site with sun so the sites are picked to have enough light and nutrient and things like that for, for optimal growth and how come you just target this one particular type of seagrass are seagrass beds generally just one species of um, we've got we've got a number here in wa um in coburn sound that's that's the primary one i suppose that's the, well, that's the main one that grows in in big meadows we've got posit posidonia sinuosa amphibolus um, there's a whole range of seagrass species but that one seems to be the one that there was existing meadows of and it's also one that we can um, easily collect the fruit because we've got dense meadows inshore that we can collect the fruit and then distribute to these sites so um, yeah that's sort of the primary one okay and what you briefly mentioned that uh, the citizen science volunteers need particular qualifications for those people who are interested in joining potentially what qualifications are these uh, open water divers so they can be a scuba diver um, with a medical check and then a free diver with at least a level one certification so we also take free divers for for the um, restoration work oh amazing i didn't know that that'd be fun to free dive and tickle some seaweed <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good challenge we have to get our buoyancy right um, but it, yeah, it's lots of fun and there's lots of sea life there. So it's it's nice to kind of shine a light on seagrass. It doesn't tend to get quite as much attention as say coral reefs or um, I don't know, other, other kinds of ocean ecosystems. Yeah, but we know that seagrass is of course one of the most important. I mean, they're all important, but one of the most important ecosystems <laughs> as uh, it's responsible for an enormous amount of um, oxygen generation, is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in the project that we do. This week's episode is sponsored by you guys. As you know, I have a website, oceanpancake.com, where you can either directly support or buy t-shirts to help support the mission to continue Ocean Pancake. I also have a Patreon, so you can go over there. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. So you were saying that uh, people are very interested in the seagrass restoration project because of the carbon sequestering? Yeah, some people are. I mean, our divers, obviously, that's probably not their primary reason to engage with the project. But yeah, I think from say the corporate world and things like that, there's a there's an interest in what we're doing because of, I guess, the larger impacts of doing large scale restoration works like this one. Mm -hmm. uh, how many mm -hmm. volunteers do you usually get on a particular dive day and how many dive days do you have in a season? Oh, well, we've certainly increased in the last couple of years. I've only been on the on the project for two years. I think it's been running for four. Mm -hmm. um, the first year we might have from maybe four divers up to 44. 
Wow. Um, I think our biggest session was, yeah, we had a big, we worked towards a bigger session because it was, in a way, it was easier to get a whole bunch of people while the, while the fruit were really flowering, um, the seagrass were flowering, like, at that time. So there was a peak of fruit to collect. Um, yeah. And it allowed us to pull our resources for supervision as well because we're, you know, it's a charity that runs it. We've got limited resources, but um, we kind of want to, you know, pick while the fruit's flowering, but also make the most of our resources. And, and so some days we, we just had a lot of divers just because that was better um, for safety. We just had more people available. Um, yeah, last year we had very ambitiously pitched for two sessions a day for the entire season, which is six to eight weeks. So we had something like 60 to 70 dive sessions, um, which was pretty hectic. I was running um, blueback and teaching freediving at the same time. So it's quite full on when the season kicks off. Um, and similarly, we'll have, you know, some sessions, a couple of divers and then others, yeah, sometimes 30 to 40 divers. Um, in an area collecting seagrass fruit. That is absolutely that is fantastic. Like to notice yeah. so many people who are getting down there and getting in the water. Um, oh, yeah, very, very heartwarming. Very like if, you, if you're in the conservation realm for any period of time, you are susceptible to eco grief, not just because yeah. <laughs> um, of what's actually going on, but um, yeah, it's hard to find projects that continue on for long periods of time where people can stay energized mm -hmm. so this seasonal project is really great because it's very hands-on yeah. people get to feel like they're doing something about the issues um yeah and then there's this social engagement aspect where you meet other divers and it's it's very warm and friendly and um it's relatively easy diving we dive maybe four to six meters maximum so it's in shallow well-lit water close to the shore and yeah, there's probably two to 300 divers that get involved every year. Hopefully we'll get more. Um, but yeah, it's a nice way for the community to get together. I don't think there's as many things where the dive community does get together. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a kind of a uniting experience and it's, yeah, it's pretty feel good, I'd say. Um, before we move on to kind of the next um, section of topics, I did just want to ask in terms of where you're collecting um, the seeds is is that just a more healthy or resilient particular meadow and then you're moving it to areas that have been um, uh, you know destroyed for whatever reason or how do you find the locations from where to where you're moving uh, the seeds the academic team from UWA are the ones that pick the sites and um, yeah they're the ones that sort of work that one out the the main reason these sites were picked that we go to is accessibility so you know safety is a really important component um, the genetic material so if we just collect from one area we are only sort of repopulating with that particular genetic stock so there's a couple of different sites we go to um, of that species um, we go offshore Karnak Island um, and there's an area called Mangles Bay we go to as well. So mostly because they're near shore, but some of the spots we do have to take a boat over, which is quite a fun day. Um, yeah, accessibility, uh, just, just a lot of fruit. So we look at doing uh, checks 
So we'll go early and check the inflorescences and check that there's a high density of fruit to be collected in a small area. And so those particular beds are quite um, fecund. There's lots of uh, seeds and fruit there. So that's the main reasons, yeah. How much is the funding a barrier to, to all these projects to kind of um, start working and where do you turn to uh, try and get the money? The fundraising with Ozfish is usually left to the fundraising team. It's not something I get involved with for that particular project. Um, I'm more focused on the resources, like the human resources side of things. So engaging community, um, which is a phenomenally economical way to do any large scale marine citizen science project, or any, any marine science project is having lots of hands on deck that don't, don't have to be paid and are happy to come along. Um, it's just getting the training and, and things like that sorted out for them so that there's a really good reciprocity um, of volunteers with the organisation and the project. For things like the Fremantle Underwater Film Festival, um, which runs on the smell of an oily rag, um, fundraising for conservation projects for that is done through ticket sales. Mm -hmm. So we get a little bit of in-kind support, mostly from venues, and hopefully the City of Fremantle will support us this year for a venue or at least give us a bit of support. Um, but primarily, yeah, it just comes from um, in-kind support and just letting people know what you're doing really helps people decide whether they're on board and getting really clear, especially in the last year or two on the mission, the values and the vision of the festival. Um, and, and then what the projects we support with the festival are. So just basically communicating and, and trying to do that well and then one, people know you exist. And two, they can make a decision about whether their values align with yours. And then you've got, you know, you've got your advocates there because, you know, it's clear what you're about and it's clear what they want to support you on. Yeah, that's why science communication and kind of conservation communication is such a key aspect, I think, in, mm. you know, in any success when it comes to natural preservation of whether it's marine or land areas. Um, Mm, yeah, and film, community. film and digital media, um, you know, like the visual, mm -hmm. the visual aspect of science in general that we observe, but just, just the way we communicate and learn um, through visuals is, yeah, it's, a, it's an important thing to develop, I guess, as communicators. Like film itself is, is something I'm passionate about, but I'd noticed, for example, it's hard to find well-made films. It's, it's quite tricky, especially short films um, in our local area, um, helping people find and understand their message so that they can clearly communicate it is, um, yeah, it's a very valuable skill. So where where does the, well, obviously in Fremantle, because it's the Fremantle Film Festival and WA, but where do all the filmmakers come from? Is it um, mostly Western Australian? Um, divers or conservation people or what kind of movies do you showcase for those who haven't had the chance to go to one? Yeah so 2015 it was films from all over the world that's when I started so it's been going for seven years and yeah it was basically films about the underwater world it really didn't matter um, necessarily what the theme was although there was a bunch of themes that I hoped to cover like human and ocean technology and science uh, 
I had a, um, a film category about Maui dolphin because the film festival originally set up to support that critically endangered species and it, it still does seven years later but now we have a couple of other projects we support. Um, these days because of feedback from the community there's a real interest in what's going on locally. So yeah. over the last two to three years I've shifted the second act so the second half of the short film festival to feature local films but um, yeah it's a bit of a struggle to get high quality films so trying to develop the festival to be more professional and I guess get some better support for our projects. Um, yeah, I think a little bit of the, the learning curve is we need to build, build the skills of the local filmmakers because there's some awesome stuff going on mm. and the public want to hear about it, but the communication of it isn't always delivered as beautifully or as professionally as it could be. Um, but yeah, the second half is West Australian films. We've got science films from university projects, um, local people doing all sorts of things. Um, microplastics is a lady that um, runs an organisation called Ocean Remedy. So she educates the public locally here about microplastics and how to prevent it going into the ocean. So like things you can use basically in your laundry to prevent microplastics coming off your from your clothing. Um, and then she makes the swimwear basically out of recycled plastic bottles. So you kind of try and find and hopefully promote well enough that people come to us with short films about what's going on here. So um, anything connected to the ocean really or underwater the ocean. Um, yeah, we had a story on um, a guy that is an abalone fisher down in the Southwest. And that was absolutely beautifully told. Uh, very professional film by Andy McGregor um, called Finding Salisbury. Um, yeah, so the second half of the film festival's WA focus now. Um, it's just trying to broaden, I suppose, uh, the field of topics and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's so important to highlight local issues. And after living in WA for three years now, I just moved away. Um, I don't, it feels like a piece of home now, especially the ocean there, which I'm sure you know, it's one of the most pristine and biodiverse and just stunning stretch of coastal marine yeah. anywhere. What part of WA were you in? Can you I was in the far north. I was in Caratha for three years. Ah, cool. So what warmer than where we are here in Perth. <laughs> very, very hot. <laughs> um, Did you get to the Kalu Reef while you were there? Uh, yeah, plenty of times, but we actually found that the Dampier Archipelago, so where where we lived, um, mm -hmm. had a much greater uh, like reef health and marine biodiversity, just because it's not as much a tourist destination as mm -hmm. Exmouth and Ningaloo Reef is, um, mm -hmm. despite there being a lot of green zones in that area up in Dampier, just the fish stocks were just so healthy and I've never seen so many large fish of all the keystone species um, just on every dive and you know just being so lucky to see everything from humpback whales to manta rays to leopard sharks to we would count and we'd see seven to ten species of shark on every weekend diving um, so yeah, I'm pretty sad to have left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty special. And I guess it's one of the 
the challenges of conservation is like running alongside ecotourism and mm-hmm. and just all the other things that come alongside with a bunch of humans discovering how awesome the ocean is in certain parts of the coast. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And then, you know, battling between the natural value of the region to the economic value based off of the, you know, um, massive industry that in WA, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately is still mining. Um, and that's why WA is so rich relatively and does spend so much money on, you know, uh, many national parks and green zones and everything. But yeah, it's a it's a tough kind of balance to walk, I think, especially. Yeah, sometimes it's not so balanced. <laughs> it's, sometimes uh, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. It definitely is. Uh, and yeah, well, w- w- you would have seen the videos. I'm sure some were featured in the film festival based off of Ningaloo Reef and trying to stop mm, the yeah. oil expansion there. And Yes, 100%. Yeah, I was lucky enough to work with Protect Ningaloo for at least a year, um, a couple of years as a volunteer, but um, worked on the team. And that is ongoing. Just so many threats oncoming. We've got Gascoigne Gateway. Um, the positive side of it is that I think the outcome will be the extension of the Ningaloo Marine Park. I think we just yes. need a bit more community support there to protect Exmouth Gulf. Mm-hmm. But there's like salt mining and all sorts of things that just want to chip in on that beautiful part of part of the Ningaloo Reef and just part of the, the ocean. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah. everyone just needs to keep the awareness up um, that, that there's still more to do and that you know protection is just the beginning I guess yeah. making sure there's still wilderness areas um, yeah mm-hmm. but you know if it was up to people like us we would just protect the whole world and <laughs> okay. no well, well, anywhere <laughs> yeah I'd find a balance I think I think there's something really healthy natural and you know um, environmentally sustainable for some fishing practices I'm not mm-hmm. you know I'm not against that I think that there's something very beautiful and relaxing and reconnecting when the human gets inside the ocean and and for some people that's going hunting yeah and and looking for fish but I think the education needs to come first before people engage with with hunting and taking because most of us especially in WA like we don't need to catch fish to survive Mm. like we're not subsistence fishing we're doing it for leisure and pleasure and to supplement our diet but um, that's, I think, one of the, the the challenges here is that false polarity or that dichotomy between the fishers and the non-fishers or the, the greenies and the resource sector. Um, it's not really like that. I think I'm, I'm hoping to foster a little bit of nuancing and education there around, um, yeah, being anywhere on the spectrum there and finding your own mix of ethics um, that's hopefully justifiable in the face of the reality of what's going on in our planet and in our oceans. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Education and that open communication for people to be able to learn, you know, the positives and the negatives of fishing or spearfishing or conservation and green zones where it, it, it shouldn't be us against them. And I don't know if you saw this but recently, because um, I follow a lot of the fishing pages and stuff around Australia, uh, they have begun being even more vocal um, 
about the importance of green zones and supporting oh. climate change because you know we know the more green zones the more fish stocks there actually are and the oh 100 yes climate change rules the better off our reefs will be therefore you know the marine biodiversity which includes the fish that people want to target kind of wrap up a little bit i did yeah, sounds good a couple more questions just uh you did mention early on in the podcast how you believe you know free diving and being in the ocean kind of brings people to conservation and sustainability uh, so mm. to kind of expand on that so how, how do you think scuba diving and free diving and spearfishing and all that kind of fits into ocean conservation efforts yeah I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why diving and being in the water even just snorkeling helps change people's point of view um, also in like develops their passion really gets people fired up um, because they actually get to see what's going on for themselves. I think uh, there's a lot of things that we can teach verbally and through video, but there's nothing like a, an experience of abundant and biodiverse nature. I think there's something very calming about that. I think there's something very reassuring and it's without words. I mean, um, diving just does that thing. Breath hold diving does that thing um, as well as scuba diving. I think there's different benefits to both. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah just being in nature helps us reconnect and I think it's self-evident for most of us why that's so important to keep that healthy it's it's part of our own health and the two are interconnected and interdependent just as much as all the, the living creatures in the ocean share their life once we are in it we're part of it and I think that becomes just very clear once you start connecting with the sea um, so fostering divers making sure they're doing it safely but mm -hmm. that they're learning the skills to integrate into the ocean I think is really valuable I think once you once you're calm and you've developed a certain level of skill um, you really do feel a part of it you really get that sense of, of being connected to nature and then it becomes exceedingly important to care for it I mean it's part of you it's like not caring for your own health um, and that that usually you know it takes a bit of encouragement for those that aren't swimmers or that, mm -hmm. that have a lot of fear developed probably through social media rather than actually through negative incidences or experiences um, but I have really heard a person say that they regretted spending time in the sea yeah that's definitely the case I mean I know one person who said that to me and I'll never forget that <laughs> and I don't know what they're doing with their life. <laughs> <laughs> were they stung by a jellyfish? Something like that? Quite well, a lot of I think the were. precise words were, it was fine, but I don't see what the fuss is about. And yeah, I just, I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's that, that whole thing of ignorance is bliss. Like, you know, and we, we have a finite amount of energy or we can think that we have a finite amount of energy. So we sort of pointed in the direction of where we think we should be heading. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of people see that as, you know, a, a drain of energy, especially if, if engaging with the ocean is a particularly tiring experience and you go out when there's lots of swell or wind and, mm -hmm. and the conditions aren't good, that can certainly lead towards a negative experience, um, especially yeah. if you're not equipped and, and a good swimmer. 
Yeah. Uh, but I think the vast majority of experiences when you have an education about how to use your human body in an aquatic environment, what gear to bring. Um, yeah, I think it's just life-changing. <laughs> I think that's also why um, it's so important to, you know, do a course or to join a community where you can kind of be guided along the way because it is an alien landscape for us after all. Hmm. Yeah, we, we, it's not like a pottery course, even a pottery <laughs> course probably takes a few goes, you know, it's not like a, um, I'm trying to think of something, you know, like a lot of us want to get our information in a short condensed bite. And like, I think there's a false understanding that, you know, self-development, self-mastery and connection with the ocean is something you can learn in a two-day course. Yeah. Like yeah. it takes time to, to foster any skill. And I think if you want to develop a sense of mastery, um, even in mastery and understanding the natural world, you have to spend time at it yeah. and you have to expect that it will and, and enjoy the process in the meantime. And I think that's one thing that I hear is that it is exceptionally enjoyable, especially when people lower their expectations of learning everything in a day Yeah, and, and yeah. enjoy the journey, like the journey of understanding things in a broader in a broader way that develops wisdom basically very well put um and to finish off I want to ask you the question that I ask every single one of my guests and that is you could kind of condense everything you know you have learned and seen and just give one piece of advice to people who want to help protect our oceans what would that one piece of advice be hmm one piece of advice to give people about how to or what to do. Yeah. Can you reiterate? Yeah. Hmm. Well, just whatever they can do or how to approach it or, you know, just a little piece of your wisdom based off of your experience. Mm, it would be connect regularly with the ocean, even walking by the shore, just observing by being in it and around it. You're going to, you're going to get that thing, that passion, that um, curiosity um, fostered as well as reinforced, um, as well as all the soothing aspects of being by the water, um, just by being near it. And I think everything else is secondary. It's, it's essential. Stay connected and, and get in the water. <laughs> I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Tanya. I hope I get thank to you to Western Australia soon and maybe finally do my official freediving course because I haven't yet. Yes, yes, come on over. Come when it's warmer, but um, we've got some great diving off right now. What you want? If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Sorry that I'm a little bit stop-start. It's been a little while since I've been recording podcasts, a little bit out of the loop, so I very much appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. And don't forget to check out Tanya Douth White's work, Blue Back Freediver, and her work with Ozfish, and of course the Fremantle Film Festival. If you are in the Perth or Fremantle area, it's fantastic to hear how many great opportunities there are for you to get involved if you're a videographer or just a diver. 
If you're somewhere else in the world, you can of course donate to any of these fish restocking programs that are in Australia, or you can find an organization that's closer to your environment there, and that might be near and dear to your heart. Try and find some places to volunteer. There's so many things we can do. Anyway, I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much once again.